Let's uh, jump into what we're doing today. Um, we're going to be looking at the question, why bother with Christianity? And uh, we're going to be kind of looking at Romans 12. That was what was read before. Um, but in particular, I want to look at this question. Uh, there, there are many reasons why someone might bother with Christianity, but the question I want to look at today is why bother with it at a personal level? Um, for many young people, it it can be really uh, easy to, to just think of Christianity maybe as this kind of foreign thing. Maybe it's something that your parents do, but you're not really sure about. Uh, you're not really sure how it's relevant. Um, and I want to be looking at that today. Why, why bother with Christianity at a personal level? What, what does it mean for me? What, what does it look like in concrete terms? What, what are some of the benefits? So um, that's what we'll jump into today. But before we do that, uh, I'm going to pray for us. Uh, and then, yeah, we can uh, get into today's talk. So... Uh, please pray with me if you're comfortable. Father in heaven, uh, we give thanks for uh, your scriptures. We thank you that Christianity is something worth bothering with, um, that the life of Jesus uh, and his death and resurrection, these are incredibly powerful things which uh, speak to us and uh, yeah, really shape the way that we can live life. Thank you that you offer us new life through Jesus. And we pray that as we uh, think more about how Christianity applies at that personal level, that you'll be helping us to really get into uh, the things that we, we care about and helping us realize how much we need you. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what does it mean to be truly free? Is it the ability to express oneself? Is it the ability to live as you want to live? Uh, to self-govern, self-adjudicate, to be self-sufficient, to show self-restraint, or maybe to achieve self-actualization? Is it freedom from tyranny? Freedom from traditional authority structures? Freedom from those who would seek to enforce alien worldviews and value judgments on your personal preferences? Or is it freedom from harm, oppression, corruption, discrimination, bigotry, freedom, and freedom from systematic failures that, that reinforce the dominant power structures and the status quo. What does it mean to be truly free? It's human nature, I think, to crave freedom. And some of our greatest achievements have come in the quest for freedom, haven't they? But the thing is, not all freedoms are, are good or fruitful. Last year, a journalist named Matthew Hongoltz-Hetling, he wrote a book called uh, A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear. And uh, his reporting follows the adventures of a community of uh, libertarians in the United States that set out to create this perfect utopia together. And for those that don't know what a libertarian is, uh, it's a political ideology that believes government intervention should be kept to an absolute minimum uh, so that personal freedoms and, and individualism can be maximised. So there's a strong uh, emphasis on market economics and forces, believing that ingenuity and the, uh, the entrepreneurial spirit can address the needs and desires of the populace and, and whatever's needed. And it's this belief in absolute personal freedom. You should be free to do whatever you want, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. Anyway, libertarians uh, have never wielded much political power at state or federal level, um, so they've never really been able to properly road test their ideas in a, a real world setting. Uh, until relatively recently, anyway. In 2004, a ragtag group of these uh, libertarians, they descended on the small town of Grafton in New Hampshire uh, to implement this grand vision that they had. And they called it the Free Town Project. And basically what they did is they just took over that local government, gutting their rules, gutting the regulations, their taxes and public services. 
And at first, it started out great. People could set up and build houses as they wanted to. Uh, there was this sense of camaraderie and creativity as people expressed their shared beliefs in this absolute autonomy that they had. If you wanted to live in a shipping container, you could do that. Or you could maybe set up a tent in the woods if you wanted to live out there. If you wanted to chop down some trees or blow up some small mountain or cave because it was uh, in the way, then uh, yeah, you could do that. If you wanted to set off firecrackers at 1am to celebrate something going on in your life, then uh, why not? You are free to do that as well. If you didn't feel like recycling... Who's anyone to tell you that you should do that? If you wanted to settle a dispute with an unruly neighbour, you could take the law into your own hands. Predictably, it wasn't long before it became a Wild West-style, frontier-style town. Uh, the place was just overrun with gar garbage and <coughs> crime and, and sexual offences went up and disputes continued to arise as people exercised their personal freedoms in increasingly intrusive ways on each other. And then the bears started to come. It'd been over a hundred years since uh, a bear attacking their town, uh, as they were mostly contained to the woods, uh, as you'd expect. But when people decided to eat and sleep and live out there, uh, along with the, the kind of increased garbage that was strewn along uh, around the town, well, it just became this, this banquet for local bears. The town that had seen no need for public service then had no rangers, no police, no firefighters, no doctors uh, to help when the town became uh, overrun with these increasingly confident and aggressive bears. And <clears throat> you would think that this fairly bizarre situation would have been stopped some time ago, but apparently it's still going on and there were bear, bear attacks as recently as last year. So they still haven't given up their um, anti-government, pro-bear attracting ways. You see, it's easy to become stuck in your ways when you're so convinced that your way of seeing things is the only way or the right way to see things. It's so easy to, to take your freedoms and your responsibilities for granted when you don't pay attention to the things that make a community function well. And I mentioned this as a way of connecting this spirit of autonomy that we all seem to have with our relationship with God. It's easy to live as a spiritual libertarian, thinking that the less is more when it comes to God. That to truly discover ourselves, we need to first unshackle ourselves from primitive beliefs or oppressive church structures and a God who has no right to interfere with my personal life choices. I'm sure we all feel that sometimes, some more than others. Why bother with Christianity? Surely we're, we're better off without God, free from his tyranny and oversight. I mean, what does God even offer us anyway, right? Some might feel that Christianity is irrelevant at best, but destructive and evil at worst. But today, I want to challenge some of those presumptions. I want to make the case for why Christianity is worth bothering with, uh, why it's worth bothering with at a personal level. We may think that we don't need God, but the hardships of life require resilience and purpose and hope and community. All of things, all of these things which are found in Christianity. We may think that we don't need God, but the hardships of life require resilience, purpose, hope and community, of which all of them are found in, in Christianity. And so to kick off, I want to suggest that Christianity gives you hope through hardship. So Christianity gives you hope through hardship. And by hardship, um, I want to tap into both meaning and suffering. Um, both are connected in some way. Um, 
But anyway, the, the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, he, he described human existence as one of condemnation, in that we're condemned to be free because once we're thrown into the world, man is responsible for everything he does. So the buck stops with us ultimately, doesn't it? We are responsible for our choices and we're to live with the consequences. While life gives us endless possibilities and experiences to encounter, so, it, well, it can also be a massive burden to create a life that's meaningful and satisfying and fulfilling in the long term. The anguish of freedom can leave people paralysed or, or full of regret when life just doesn't pan out as we hoped it would or when it doesn't deliver on what was promised. One of my um, favourite Old Testament books is the, the book of Ecclesiastes and it looks at how things like work and wealth and success, intelligence, identity, possessions, all these things, how they can promise a particular outcome but leave us feeling empty when we, when we fail to get them or even worse, when they fail to live up to the expectations. You see, we live in a world that struggles to, to overcome this loss of meaning when, when temporal goals and outcomes and ideals fail us. But it's also something that young people experience as well. There was a, a, a massive study conducted by the uh, OECD, so that's the, uh, the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, and this study they, they did across schools in 79 countries in 2018. And they had a section that was asking students to grade their sense of meaning in life. So asking students to grade their, their meaning in life. And they were given three statements to which they could either agree or disagree um, along a spectrum. And the three questions were, one, my life has clear meaning or purpose. Two, I've discovered a satisfactory meaning in life. Or three, I have a clear sense of what gives meaning to my life. And one of their interesting findings was, was that the more affluent or advantaged you were, the less likely you were to respond positively to these statements. And another trend was that the more secular or less religious uh, the country, the lower the sense of meaning. So for those interested, Australia ranked 11th worst, um, with Japan and a bunch of Western European countries right at the bottom there. And I want to say that Christianity has something to offer here. Christianity actually provides authentic meaning in a world of superficiality. So Christianity can provide meaning in a world of superficiality. Romans 12, which we read earlier, it talks about offering our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which at first probably sounds really weird. But what it's essentially saying is that your life and every choice that you make can be used to live for God. And that it will be pleasing to him as well. No matter the outcome, you'll be cherished and accepted in God's eyes. And this is incredibly liberating for thinking about meaning. Now, the rest of the Bible is rich with all sorts of other meaningful stories and guidance and practices and reminders and, and wisdom for navigating day-to-day -day life. But the idea of living for something outside of yourself, something which, which has meaning already there, which we don't have to create for ourselves, it can be a massive source of inspiration for Christians. And there's nothing bigger than, than living for the God of the universe. It, it's so meaningful. And, and I want to kind of flesh that out over the rest of this talk. So Christianity can provide authentic meaning in a world of superficiality, but it can also provide authentic comfort in a world averse to pain. It can also provide comfort in a world averse to pain. 
in um, 2019, the talk show host Stephen Colbert and um, news anchor Anderson Cooper, um, I've got a picture here, yeah, uh, they interviewed each other about uh, about grief and their shared experiences of suffering. Um, these two had, had suffered a lot. And um, both of them lost their dad when they were 10 years old. Um, Stephen lost his and two brothers as well in a plane crash on um, September 11th of all dates in 1974. And they talk about there being two different people experiencing uh, different universes uh, before and after the trauma. So, for example, uh, there was the Stephen Colbert before his father's death death, and then a vastly different uh, person afterwards. So it just really changed him. Now, personally, he was shattered, of course, but he talked about the process of reforming himself as one of letting go of the things that he thought were central in life. He says, important things supposedly lose some of their power. Things that had status don't have status anymore. When he was asked uh, how his mum took the loss, he talked about the faith that she had and the way that she prayed because God knew what it was like to lose a child. And that's what she was going through. And this then had a massive impact on Stephen's life and his faith throughout the rest of his life. He said that we're asked to accept the world that God gives us and to accept it with love. If God is everywhere and in everything, then the world as it is, is all just an expression of his love and you have to accept it with gratitude. I don't want it to have happened. I wish it didn't happen. But if you're going to love life, you need to love all of it. You can't pick and choose what you're grateful for. What do you get from loss? you get an awareness of other people's loss, which allows you to connect with that other person, which allows you to love more deeply and to understand what it's like to be a human being, end quote. It's a really profound interview, and it draws out a number of biblical truths that can comfort us in times of incredible suffering and hardship. I particularly appreciate the point about praying to one who's lost a son, but also reflecting on Jesus himself. We have a God that endured torture, an injustice, humiliation, abandonment, betrayal, and a drawn-out, excruciating death for us. It's morbid, but it's also real and connected with the, the horrors that we see in life. You see, God is intimately familiar with our suffering, and he gives us comfort at our lowest points, and those points will come. But he also gives us each other to love and to serve one another in times of need which is another reason why I think Christianity is worth bothering with, which brings us to the second point. Christianity gives us uh, gives you a community to be loved in. One of the things that um, COVID has laid bare is the need that we have as humans to be immersed in human relationships. As lives and physical communities have been uprooted through the pandemic, um, there's talk of uh, a shadow pandemic, which will linger for many years after the, the actual virus. And uh, yeah, as the world deals with the fallout from the corporate grief, there'll be just this increased sense of isolation and, and loneliness and, and, and kind of trauma as we work out what all this stuff meant. You see, we need each other. And Christianity at its best provides a wonderful and unique experience of community. It's one that transcends class and status and power, race, language, profession, political allegiances, hobbies, gender, and even time itself. You become part of a tradition and a community that not only transcends these divisive categories, but it's an encounter with transcendence itself as God works through the church to change lives around us. 
that's more than weekend sports or book clubs, school communities or local interest groups. And while these groups are wonderful and valuable and a great place to share some things in common, the church is uniquely placed to cater for difference. Why? Well, it says because we belong to one another in verses 4 and 5 of Romans. We belong to one another. No other community will make that claim. You see, most others are based on shared interests and demographics. And if your, if your interests or your circumstances change, well, you, you just join a different one, don't you? One more local, perhaps. And yet that's not how the Bible frames Christian community. It's built on celebrating difference, welcoming the stranger, the foreigner, the vulnerable, the unlovely, the other, the, the person that's not like you or me. It says the church is one body made up of many parts with different gifts and all used for the common good, all celebrated for their unique contribution. It's a place of interconnectedness and accountability, continuity and growth together. <clears throat> Not in like a, a meddling or an invasive way, but in a way that facilitates service to one another, sharing one another's burdens, picking up when one falls down, celebrating spiritual progress mourning with those who mourn and rejoicing with those who are rejoicing. The ebbs and flows of life, put in the context of, of God's unfolding story in our individual lives. It's a place to call home, where we can experience love and have our needs met. But it's also a community where we can love and serve others too. It's a community where we can serve and love others too. And we can help them have their needs, uh, their needs met. We can give ourselves to others. <clears throat> it's a place we can call home, but it's big enough for everyone to call home as well. Most of the language in this passage, it's about the church's commitment to one another through service. You see, it's other person-centered. Look at verse 10. It says to be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves. Or in verse 16, it says live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. You see, we leave our pride at the door. We see dignity in each and every person. And that's what the, the Christian community looks like at its best. Where Christians are interested, where we're resistant to tribal loyalties and unhelpful stereotypes and judgmentalism. Or in uh, verse 13, it says, to share with the Lord's people who are in need and to practice hospitality. And your experience of coming to church should be that people want to get to know you and uh, can offer assistance in times of need. And for those of us who are regulars at church, well, these passages ought to make us a bit uncomfortable, shouldn't they? Because it, it demands connecting with and investing in the people around us in a, in a deep and purposeful way. So it's worth asking, are we doing it? Is my home church doing it? Is Hope as a church doing it? Are the churches in Greater Hobart doing this stuff? Are we getting to know the people in our churches and working out ways to help the, the ones that are struggling, the ones that are going through hard times? It could be practical, physical, financial, spiritual, mental or emotional help. However we can help. We all have something to offer in some way. Whether it's building fences for the elderly, or building bridges between estranged spouses, welcoming new, new birth, or, or celebrating safe passage home to our maker, helping young people navigate school or the workforce or university, 
but also helping empty nesters settle into their next stage of life. Helping those who have lost work or loved ones to find the comfort and hope that comes from knowing Jesus. And inviting each other into our homes and our private spaces. You see, some of the most rewarding relationships come in the unexpected places, isn't it? Inviting fellow travellers into your home, well, it'll help them feel more at home in the church and more connected with the wider church family and body. Not only that, but it'll build connections and bonds that make the church truly dynamic in a lonely world. And that's the church at its vibrant best, reflecting the welcoming, generous, relational nature of Christ. The man that hung out with tax collectors and sinners and outcasts. The man who came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. The man who calls us to take up our cross and follow him. The man who invites us into his kingdom of love and prepares a room for each and every one of us. A seat at the table of the heavenly banquet. And that's what the church community should look like, isn't it? A place where everyone is cared for and welcomed, where no debt is outstanding except the debt to love one another more. I think that's a a community worth joining, worth bothering with, a community that is compelling, in fact. Finally, though, I want to make the case that Christianity doesn't just offer those things, but Christianity also gives us a basis for change. So Christianity gives us a basis for change. And to see this, um, I want to take us back to the start of Romans 12. Um, The chapter begins with, uh, Therefore... And um, what it's doing is, it's the preceding 11 chapters, it's outlining the magnitude of the Christian gospel and what exactly is achieved through the, the cross. So it's, it's, it's saying, therefore, in light of all that stuff. So um, the, the context there is, it, it's talking about our hearts and the way that they're, they're hardwired for, for self-interested acts or, or sin, as we call it in Christian theology. And this sin that results in a suffering world, fractured relationships with God and his planet and each other, and how even trying to be good and religious and following all the rules and the laws, we, well, we still do it with selfish motives and, and with this rank level of hypocrisy. <clears throat> we can never be good enough to earn our way to heaven. You see, all along we've needed another way to connect with God, and that way is through faith in, in Jesus Christ in chapter 3, verse 21, where it says, But now a righteousness uh, from heaven has been revealed. And yet it's talking about Christ. where his perfect life covers over our misdeeds and our evil actions, where his perfect death gives us life and where his perfect relationship with the Father extends to us, where the old has gone and the new has come. So this is the the context leading up to Romans 12. And it talks about living for him as your act of spiritual worship, which I talked about before. But it also talks about being transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can test and approve God's will, his good, perfect, and pleasing will. And at first you might think, why would we want to test and approve God's will? What does that have to do with anything? Why should that matter? But the clue comes straight after. You see, we believe God's will or his intentions are good, perfect, and pleasing. God wants good for us in this world. Not in a kind of getting rich and famous and successful kind of way, but in our character who we are deep down, in the life that we live, in the way that we treat others, in the things that we stand for. We believe that the very best that humanity has to offer are the core elements of God's character. That's humanity at its pinnacle, 
when we're living out the image of God. Love, mercy, sacrifice, wisdom, compassion, courage, loyalty, perseverance, creativity. You name it and God reflects it. He's the very essence and definition of good. He's the architect and giver of all the blessings that we experience. And because of that, genuine change for the better is possible. It's possible. You see, we're made in the image of God and we can become more like he intends for us to be. But this change being suggested, it doesn't come from deep within ourselves or from intense discipline. No, it's given to us from God. It's more than a New Year's resolution or a promise to your partner to to be better after failing again. It's more than changing bad habits and tendencies and negative thoughts. It's more than wishful or positive thinking or self-determination. No, it comes in light of God's mercy and sacrifice. So it's based on God's mercy. For 2,000 years, Christians have been celebrating and reflecting on the the, the life-giving sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, which I I talked about before. His death is for us and for our sin and our failures. We're washed clean, we're forgiven, and our guilt and our regrets, our shame, all those things are no more. It's wonderful. You see, we're, we're given the ultimate fresh start by God. But it's an ongoing redemption story for the Christian. With Christ as our starting point and our finish line, we're in safe hands throughout. And this is our basis for change. It's not that change from within, but it's a change that comes from outside. The Bible talks about God putting his spirit in us and us taking on the nature of Christ as he lives within us. And this is truly transformative. What does it look like? Well, it's expressed in humility and gratitude. Look at verse 3 there. It says, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. In many ways, I think that these two attributes, so humility and gratitude, uh, they're kind of the, the secret source that Christianity at its best offers the world. It's the ability to know and be real with oneself, what's and all. It's the, the ability to grapple with one's ego and pride and insecurity and weakness and to instead replace it with an assurance that God knows us even better than we know ourselves. And he says that we're acceptable to him because of Christ. See, there's a, there's a thankfulness that just flows out of that and a, an appreciation for the things that we have and the life we've got no matter how difficult, just as Stephen Colbert was talking about. We can love life in a way that we never thought possible because we're in sync with the one who made it all. And he gives it to us as a gift, an expression of his love. And this is liberating. It really is. <clears throat> we don't need to achieve success or wealth or social prestige or reputation. We don't need to, to conjure up some impressive image of ourselves uh, that hides our inadequacies and our vices. We don't need to pretend. We can just be who we are. We can be upfront. We can let go. We can acknowledge our struggles. We can show and express contrition for the pain that we've caused others, knowing that we're forgiven and that change is possible. Forgiveness, humility and gratitude, they become a lethal cocktail in purging self-destructive thoughts and behaviour and patterns. You see, ongoing forgiveness changes our actions. Ongoing gratitude changes our attitude. And ongoing humility changes our humanity. We see the best in others, 
and want them to have what we have in Christ. So why not consider immersing yourself in the Christian community, the Christian Bible, and the Christian God himself? You won't regret it. You won't regret it. To close, I want to come back to the question of freedom. And uh, to do that, I want to compare it to the um, the Bitcoin uh, phenomenon. Paul Krugman, the famous economist who won um, a Nobel Prize in 2008, uh, he's a self-identified uh, crypto-skeptic. And uh, he gives a couple of reasons for this. The first being that, that Bitcoin is an unnecessarily complex way of doing transactions, when history has largely been going in the opposite direction. So, for example... We move from uh, livestock to lugging kilos of gold to melting it down into physical coins, then to banknotes, and now largely we're in a cashless society where we just kind of beep with the square reader and uh, that sort of thing. But Bitcoin moves the other way. Uh, so that, that's the first reason. Like uh, Bitcoin is very uh, physical with the computer setup and everything. So it, it kind of, uh, yeah, it, it's doing the opposite of what history is doing with, with uh, finances. So that's his first reason. But the other reason, this is probably the more important one, is uh, because Bitcoin is decentralized and and untethered to um, financial institutions and traditional government structures that can guarantee their worth. So Bitcoin becomes this unpredictable rogue form of currency. If I was to ask you, what's uh, what's a Bitcoin worth right now? Uh, A lot of you will have no idea. Um, (laughs) And fair enough. it's probably worth a lot. Um, I mean, it's going up and down all the time, but how do we know why it's worth what it's worth? What, what are the algorithms behind it and who says so? And how long will it stay that way? They might continue to rise in value. They might crash hard one day. No one really knows. And I share this because I wonder if it's a great metaphor for the, the spiritual libertarian in all of us. You see... It's tempting to live life in a decentralized, unpredictable, and optimistic way. That our life, well, of course it will have value. Of course it will have meaning. And we'll withstand all the volatility and unpredictability of life. Of course we will. But I don't think that this approach will work in the long run. You see, it's important to to tether and connect yourself to, to something that can guarantee your worth. And Christianity does this. You are made in the image of God. You belong to him you have value, and one day you'll be face-to-face with him to give an account of your life. You see, Jesus invites all of us to connect with him, to be a branch in his tree of life. In John 15, 9, he says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. He goes on to say, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So why not start your spiritual connection with Christ today, if you haven't already? Be tethered to him. Be connected with him. you find that Christianity is not only worth bothering with at a personal level, but it's the best form of freedom that one can have. Let's um, pray to wrap up. Father in heaven, we give thanks that uh, you are the God who determines our value and that because it comes from you, it's guaranteed. We know that we're made in your image and that you love us and that you've created us with intention and purpose uh, and dignity and meaning and all these sorts of things that we we often take for granted and assume. We know that you you guarantee those things. So thank you for that. And uh, we pray that we'll live with that in mind, that we'll uh, know all the benefits that... uh, 
connecting with you brings, um, that we can have forgiveness and peace and, and joy and a basis for change and a community to be loved in. Uh, you just give us so much, Lord, more than we could ever ask for. Um, so we pray that you'll help us uh, to be thinking through these things. Uh, and for those of, uh, of you listening today, for those of us listening today that um, are really unsure about this and don't really know how Christianity applies, we pray that this will be something that uh, grounds it a bit, that uh, that uh, by reading your Bible together that, uh, and by knowing the Christian community that there will be a sense of what Christianity can, can offer, the difference it makes uh, and the love that you, you bring to us. So we, uh, we are so thankful for who you are, Lord, for the life, death and resurrection of Christ. And we pray that this will be the thing that helps us to be transformed by the renewing of our, our mind. Um, so yeah, we, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.